the uh, terms dechurched and deconstructed and exvangelical are, are, are words that have recently come into the vocabulary of the Christian church in the past few years. They are terms that help us to describe the increasing number of people at an alarming rate, truly, who have maybe left the church or really have walked away from the faith completely. And some have done that actually proudly declaring that they've deconstructed. They have come to the place where uh, they have achieved the proper enlightenment regarding their faith and they have deemed some of those convictions that they used to hold to, some of those truths that they used to believe, the things that their church professed uh, truly are not for them today and that they've moved away from these things. Some have even gone so far as not to just deconstruct and walk away from their faith, but some have even become fierce opponents of the faith, actively recruiting other Christians and trying to drag them away from the faith of Jesus Christ. Why is this happening? It's estimated some 40 million people have left the Christian church here in the United States over the past 10 to 15 years. That's an astounding astounding number. Why is that? When you think about it, that doesn't seem like it's a decision that most people would make, you know, uh, in, in, in an instant, you know, overnight. No one wakes up one morning and you go, you know what, I don't really believe anything that I used to believe or what my church teaches is not true. We know it's maybe an extensive uh, journey, you know, or process in that. But more important for us as believers, how can we ensure that we don't drift from the faith? How can we safeguard that which we claim to believe in and be true so that we don't make shipwreck of our own faith? And that's part of what today's passage is going to help us to begin to understand. It contains a strong warning for us as we begin to dissect the cause of apostasy. Departing from the faith, walking away from the faith. And it's going to show us some things on how we can safeguard ourselves from that as well. So if you're there in the uh, fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, we're going to read from verse 1 through the first part of verse 7. Uh, I know we have these subheadings in our Bible, and sometimes that can throw us off a little bit. Uh, This whole passage is actually connected to what has come before it as well and even after for what we're going to read. So next week, as we continue on in chapter 4, you're going to start seeing the connection between uh, all of these things. As you're there, let's hear the word of the living God. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. We last looked uh, at the church's character and confession uh, there at the tail end of chapter 3. The church, we said, is the visible manifestation of the household of God. The church is a family. It's the family of God. The church is the church of the living God. She is God's temple. She is the dwelling place of the presence of God. God is in the midst of his people. God is here today, brothers and sisters. This is no casual gathering. This is no ordinary thing, even though we express it in ordinary ways. God is with us. And the church, as God's household, and the temple of the presence of the Lord, is also the guardian and herald of the truth of God, of the word of God. And the church is to confess and profess those truths. And we said the church is to be confessional. We have creeds. We have confessions, the things that we believe. And these are the things that we confess. That's what we do. 
And Paul there, writing at the end of chapter 3, says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And that confession that we make is Christ. He is the mystery of godliness. He is the key to godliness. He is the key to how we are transformed from the wretched creatures that we were, now made new in Him, born again, recreated in Him, and now can begin to live out all of these things that Paul is laying out in this letter that ought to be part of the conduct of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why he writes to Timothy. He says, look, if, if I delay in coming to you, I'm writing these things so that you can teach others to know how they ought to behave in God's household. But the only way we can even begin to do that is through Jesus. He is the key to that. And then Paul recites this Christ-saturated ancient creedal hymn of the church that speaks of the revelation and witness and reception of Jesus. He says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Right? These, are, these are massive terms, speaking of the entire scope of, of His incarnation coming to the earth and then, and then to his, his resurrection from the dead by the Spirit of grace, the Spirit of God. He was witnessed by angels. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Beautiful hymn, six short lines that, that span the scope and entirety of the, the, the gracious work of our Redeemer, who He is and what He's done for us, and how He's been witnessed by angels, He's been witnessed by the world, We've been, He's been called on to be, be believed on in the world, and he ascended into glory and sits at the right hand of the Father. He is Lord. He is reigning supreme right now. He's not going to be Lord in the future. He's Lord right now. And this confession of this glorious Christ makes possible the godly conduct that Paul is telling us that we ought to walk in. Now here at the start of chapter 4, we see yet again another warning, another set of instructions, a, 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 a flashing alarm sign that he is uh, writing here in this letter that there are some people, false teachers, who are denying what the church confesses. This is what the church confesses, and now there's these others, well, they're coming up with their own confession. They're denying that one and confessing something else. There are some in the church who are not holding fast to the truth. They're departing from it. They're leaving it. And Paul exhorts Timothy all the way back in chapter 1. It started with rebuking those. He says, rebuke those. Tell them to keep silent. Those who are teaching a different doctrine. Tell them to shut up. We have the authority to do that. To tell those who are preaching a different gospel, teaching a different doctrine, something that's an aberration or distortion of the gospel... We can tell them to be quiet. He says that those who are preaching irreverent myths, silly myths, talking about endless ge genealogies and controversies, and all that they're doing is, is making shipwreck of their faith. And he mentions two people in the Bible by name, who many scholars believe possibly could have been elders at the church at Ephesus at one time. That they've gone on to not hold to the faith, but have rejected the faith rejected a good conscience, and in the end there of, of chapter 1, he says they've made shipwreck of their faith. So Paul, writing these instructions then to, in chapter 3, on the qualifications of church leaders, he writes, here's an essential qualification. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They have to. Those who would lead the people of God have to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Not lightly. Not open-handedly, but they must cling to it tightly. And this letter is peppered with exhortations for Timothy to safeguard the truth and keep himself from drifting away, from him falling away and getting swept up in all of these silly myths and other things, the error that was happening in the church. The very last instruction of Timothy in chapter 6 at the end of this letter is a repeated warning of that very same thing. Don't you think that that's a really big deal? The immense emphasis that's not just put in this letter, but other apostolic letters as well. It's a big deal for the church of Jesus Christ. This is the early church. This is the church at its founding. 
and here this problem of error and false teaching and false teachers had already crept in there. It was a big problem then. It's an even bigger problem now. And I don't think we have to think too hard about that. Think about how quickly a falsehood, a false teaching spreads around the world in an instant because of technological advancements. That falsehood is no longer contained to some small little corner of the world where it is spreading. Now, in a moment, anyone can log on 24-7, have access to have false teaching just flood their minds and hearts. It's crazy. It's not just even through technology. I remember years back how quickly the garbage theology of the book The Shack began to spread around churches all around the world. A book that sold millions and millions of copy with, with, with incredible distortions of the nature of God, the Trinity, the character of God, the grace of God. And I can tell you many people left the church and departed the church, not because they, quote, unquote, denied the faith, but that book somehow gave them a license to, to jettison the ancient teachings of the gospel and the faith and, and embrace something new. And now this book claimed it would be helping people who had suffered tragedy and loss to get an understanding of God, but the understanding it gave people of God was not the God of the Bible. But now you can turn on the television, you can... Anything on YouTube, countless podcasts, and people's lives are being flooded with all sorts of teachings. And what kind of error are we allowing into our heart and lives when we listen indiscriminately? Safeguarding the truth has become increasingly much more difficult. So in beginning to dissect how one apostatizes from the faith, we're going to gain some valuable principles for detecting error, detecting false teaching, and how... To keep from it. And this is important, brothers and sisters. I want you to have very sharpened and tuned up discernment radars when it comes to this stuff. One of the reasons we make much emphasis of it, one of the reasons we're covering all of these things and we talk about it repeatedly as it comes up in the scripture is so that the moment you hear it, you can spot it. The moment you hear what's false, you can avoid it and you can reject it. Uh, Philip Ryken, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, writes this, and the importance, again, for us, because the deception, the error, the false teaching isn't always uh, obvious to us. He writes this, if Satan's favorite strategy is deception, it follows that the church is in real danger of being fooled by false doctrine. Some theology is so bad it can be spotted a mile off. But most false doctrines contain enough truth to resist detection. The most dangerous heresies often sound the most like authentic Christianity. We see that in our world today. We see that with this this strain of progressivist Christianity uh, that is couched in Christian language, uses Christian language, but has departed uh, from much of the truth of the gospel. So how will some depart from the faith? Because this is what Paul is saying here. Some will depart from the faith. Now, that Greek word, will depart, right? That verb there means to abandon a position, to go away from, to withdraw from. It is the Greek verb apostisontai. And that's where we get the English word apostasy or to apostatize from the faith. So when will people depart from the faith? He tells us there, right? Some will depart from the faith in later times. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. So the question is, when will that be? And there's many to hold that there's going to be a great falling away at some point prior to the return of Christ, that there will be a a great apostasy that takes place place where a large number of professing uh, Christians are going to walk away from the faith and abandon it completely. Is that the later time that Paul is talking about? What do you think? Let's call back. We call back to our series in Revelation. We talked about the last days quite a bit. You could say later times, last days. He's talking about the same thing here, all right? Uh, Well, we talked about the last days there. When is the last days, according to 
our series in Revelation for those of you who were here. It's now, right? Last days is not some far off future event immediately preceding the return of Christ. We are in the last days. And we've been in the last days since it was inaugurated at the ascension of Christ. And we're going to be in the last days until it's consummated at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been in the last days. We are in the last days. We will be in the last days. When, when you see last days in the New Testament, the apostolic writers are writing with the intent that it is something that is present and it's happening now. But you're saying, well, it's talking about something in the future here. In the last days, it's in the future tense, some will depart. That's in the future tense. But then Paul does something really interesting here. He actually shifts the verbal tense when he begins to describe the nature and depict the nature of false teachers and false teaching. He speaks of it as something present. When you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, there at the beginning, he starts talking about the last days again, a later time, and he begins to describe, you know, how people are going to be in the last days, you know, lovers of self and boasters and all of these other things. And then he tells Timothy, Timothy, avoid these people. And it's all present tense. Avoid them because they're here now. It's never viewed as something future. When we talk about the last days, we're talking about the church age. That's what we're talking about. So let's not read something like this and go, I don't have to worry about that right now. That's way off out there. Probably not even in my lifetime. Nope, right now. And you have to safeguard yourself from being casualty of this here as well. So when's it going to happen? It's happening right now. People have been departing from the faith. They are departing from the faith. And they will be departing from the faith during the entirety of this period of time. How does Paul know this? How does Paul know that in this present age, in the church age, the last days, some will depart from the faith? Well, he tells us. The Spirit expressly says. Notice he doesn't say the Spirit just, the Spirit told me. No, the Spirit expressly says. Now, there's an urgency with that. This is what the Spirit of the Lord is saying now. He's, he's not saying this from a personal observation. This is not anecdotal to Paul, even though he cites people who have fallen away from the faith, even though he's telling us there's some departing from the faith, and he even names them in Scripture. No, he says that the Spirit has predicted this occurrence. The Spirit expressly says... Now, he's obviously claiming his apostolic authority to teach and instruct the church there because he is coming with the authority of the Lord in saying that. And how is this revealed to him by the Spirit? He doesn't tell us there. We know he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit as he's penning this letter. It could be that the Lord revealed it to him, his Spirit revealed to him. Maybe it was a vision, maybe it was a prophetic word. Either way, he's, he's, he's affirming that it's the Spirit who has told us these things and is saying these things to us we know he's already predicted this before in acts chapter 20 we covered this when he when he summons the uh elders of the church at ephesus to him while he was at miletus he begins to tell him what's going to happen he knows he's going off to rome he's going to be imprisoned and he says to them this very sobering thing he goes i know after my departure fierce wolves are going to come in to savage the flock of god to attempt to seduce them away, away from the faith of Jesus Christ, to destroy the work of Christ in the church of Jesus Christ. So he's already predicted these things are going to happen. We know other apostolic writers have done the same. But we know that our Lord also told us these things as well. In Mark chapter 13, in his gospel, verse 22, Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. To what end? Lead astray, if possible, the elect. That's sobering. And I don't want to get into the whole thing right now of this aspect, uh, this departing from the faith. Is that a permanent thing? Is it just a temporary? Will they come back to the faith? I don't know. Some might. Some genuine Christians who are struggling and questioning might appear to depart from the faith, but in reality, they belong to the Lord. And they are his, and they will be brought back in due season. 
But that's not really the indication that we have from Paul here at this moment, even though that might be the case. But Paul is saying this is what the Spirit is saying in this moment. And and this is comforting in many ways for us. Because we might look at these, 40 million people have left the institutional church or the visible church in our country over the past couple of decades or however many years this latest report is showing. But is any of that a surprise to God? Any of this catch God by surprise? It's caught him off guard. Is he scratching his head? Why are these people walking away from me? He's not. He's not. The Spirit expressly says, the Spirit has predicted this. He's shown us that. He's, he's warning us. He is telling us what's happening. Why? Because Jesus is the head of his church. He builds his church. He's protecting his church. And he knows what will happen. And this is why he warns the leaders of the church. And this is why he, he, he warns all of the family of believers in the church of Jesus Christ. This is a present reality. Be on the alert. Watch yourself. Hold fast to the faith. Repeated warning after repeated warning when it comes to this. So why is it then that some end up departing from the faith? Why do they abandon the gospel? Why do they apostatize? And we can hear a lot of different reasons why people may give for that. I know many of you have heard or experienced yourself. Oh, I, I was really wounded by some of the people in the church. It's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. All they did was talk about me. Or oh, I couldn't find any friends in the church. I didn't find it welcoming. Maybe I experienced some spiritual abuse at the hands of a church leader or a pastor in the church. There's many reasons people might give. They had dis- disagreed with some uh, open-handed theological issues, perhaps, that the church was teaching. For some, they say they departed the faith because they experienced a deep personal loss or tragedy or suffering that they walked through, and their, their questions were too numerous. Why would a good God allow this? And they doubted the love of God and the things that they walked through, and that caused their faith to grow cold, and eventually they drifted away from the truth. Some depart from the faith because they are influenced by these growing number of high-profile ex-pastors and ex-worship leaders who deconstruct their faith, and now they want to influence a whole generation of people to follow in their footsteps. I, I think of Joshua Harris, who not long ago came out, a popular Christian pastor and author uh, uh, who is now practicing a homosexual lifestyle, who deconstructed his faith. And walked away from it. All sorts of internal and external pressures. That have contributed to the decisions that many have taken. To leave the faith. But is that the ultimate reason? Or are those all valid reasons why people are departing from the faith? Well let's look at what Paul says here. In this passage here. And he's going to give two main reasons why people are departing from the faith. Why they are apostatizing. Two causes. The first is demonic. The second is a human cause. Human agents of false teachers. So let's look at those two causes briefly here. The demonic cause of apostasy. To understand truthfully how people depart from the faith and the cause of why they depart from the faith, we cannot underestimate the spiritual reality of the kind of warfare that takes place in the supernatural realm. We often forget that. We go about our day-to-day life and indifferent to the, the spiritual realities that God's Word unveils to us, especially in regards to when it comes to this aspect of people departing from the faith and growing cold in their faith. It's like the proverbial great glacier. You know, we see the superficial causes above the surface, and it's all those particular excuses I talked about and many others. But beneath the surface here is this this gigantic mass, right, that that is the foundational underlying spiritual dynamic and reality of why people apostatize, right? Uh, Paul writes here that people are departing from the truth because they have devoted, listen to the language here, devoted themselves, given themselves over to demonic doctrine, teachings of demons they're listening to them paying attention to them following deceitful spirits 
That is the underlying spiritual dynamic that's at the heart of apostasy. There are demonic spiritual forces actively at work right now to deceive and seduce people away from devotion to Jesus Christ. So behind all that is false, behind all false teaching, behind all false teachers is the activity of demonic forces hell-bent on influencing and seducing believers away from the truth. We cannot underestimate that. If you've ever wondered how, man, this person is so intelligent. They know so much. How could they listen to that false teacher? How can they follow after that new age practice? Man, these are, man, these are smart people. Well, I think you guys know smart people can do dumb things too, right? <laughs> but smart people are being deceived by deceitful spirits and the teachings of demon. They're being seduced away from those, from 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 sound teaching and doctrine. We've all had probably stories of people that we once knew, solid believers, knew the word of God. We would say they were on fire for God. They never missed anything in the church. We're like, they love Jesus. Like they were great examples. And where are they today? Not serving the Lord. They departed from the faith. Well, be assured that deceiving spirits played a large role role in that person's apostatizing it's what's behind every single false religion on the planet the teachings of demons doctrines of devils deceitful seducing spirits islam buddhism hinduism taoism all new age spiritism all of the, 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 the false Christian cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and any other cult you can think of. What is behind all that? Doctrines of devils, teachings of demons. Why is it that Paul exhorts believers in Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God? Because without it, you will not stand firm. There are spiritual forces of this present darkness cosmic principalities and powers who have one agenda to take us out. And we go about our life like that. Indifferent to all these things. And then we wonder, right? We wonder why these things are happening around us. False teachers and others are under the sway of demonic spirits, deceitful spirits, Spirits propagating error. And notice this. Paul says the spirit expressly says. What spirit is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the spirit of God. That's the spirit of truth. That is the spirit that he is speaking under. And he's contrasting that to other spirits that are also speaking. But those are deceitful spirits. And those are the ones that false teachers are under the sway of. They are the ones speaking under this demonic influence. What does that mean to us? How discerning do we need to be in what we take into our mind and heart? What teachings we allow into our life? What we spend time consuming? We must be careful. Our discernment must be sharpened so that we are not captivated by demonically inspired doctrines. I will say that to some of you here of the more charismatic persuasion. Be careful of those self-titled prophets and prophetesses who like to tickle the ears who like to just say what everybody wants to hear, that all they speak about are their dreams and visions and their trips to heaven and how much God has spoken to me. God says, God told me, God showed me. I was on the toilet. I was in the shower. I was in my garden. And God speaks to me all the time. What they're speaking is not the gospel. It's not the word of God. They are not the mouthpiece of God. They are channeling demonically inspired doctrine. That is what they're doing. And they're seducing people away from the truth. Oh, it has a veneer of Christianity, 
They're saying Jesus. They're mentioning Jesus. They talk about the love of God, the grace of God. And, and boy, look what I saw in heaven while I was there. There were unicorns, you know, going through a field, lush wheat fields. It's amazing how every vision they have doesn't line up with anything that God's word reveals to us about glory. Be careful. They are everywhere. Stay close to God's word. Hold on to it. It is easy to get sucked up into that. And I'm telling you because I was there at a time. I listened to that garbage. I I always wanted to hear the new revelatory word. What's the word of the day? What's the word of the year? What's the word of the season? And it's always the same stuff. Breakthrough's coming. Man, that breakthrough never comes, man. New levels, new dimensions. God's going to have you step up and level up. Same stuff, same garbage. Oh, and make sure you send that offering in to them so those words can keep flowing. There is a spirit of truth, and there is a spirit of error. And so John tells us, to test the spirits. We, we need to test the spirits. Is it from God or is it not from God? And sometimes, right, it sounds like it's from God. It wouldn't be seductive. It wouldn't be alluring if it was a blatant blasphemy, right? Most of us would go, wow, that's woof. <laughs> no. But most of us are like, wow, that, that sounds kind of cool. I like that. Even though God's word doesn't say anything about it. That's the first cause of apostasy, demonically influenced and inspired teachings of devils. But how does that transfer from the spiritual realm and enter our world? How do they get a hearing on these demonically inspired teachings? How do they come into the world, especially come into the church? Well, through human false teachers. It comes in through through people. They are the gateway for this stuff. Paul calls them insincere liars whose consciences are seared. Think about these, this, this little succinct description he gives about the nature of false teachers. They're insur, insincere. That's the, the Greek word hypocrisis, where we get the word hypocrite. They're hypocrites. They're hypocritical liars. They're play-acting. They're presenting themselves to be something they are not. They are operating under false pretenses. Deliberate liars. Intentional liars. That means they know they are deceiving people. But wait a minute, Dan. You you just said that they're influenced by demons. Yes. So that means that they're they're not aware of what they're doing. They're just being deceived. Nope, that's not what God's word says. There is deception but they know it. They know what they're teaching is wrong. They know what they're teaching. See, the the crux of who he's talking about here are people who are in the church. That means they knew apostolic teaching. They're departing from the truth, meaning they knew the truth, and now they've left it. They've drifted away from it. So they knew the truth, and they know what they're teaching now is a distortion of that. Their teaching are lies. They're spreading deliberate falsehoods. How do we know that? Well, their consciences are seared. That's a strong imagery there. That word seared is where we get the word cauterized, right? The wound is cauterized, right? It's burned, right? And it deadens all the nerve endings and would close up a wound, but, but it leaves a nasty scar, right? It's, it's deadened flesh, deadened skin. And he's saying this is how their consciences are. Their consciences are deadened. It's deadened to the point where their conscience is no longer clear. They don't listen to the voice of conscience now that's warning them against what they're doing, that they're teaching falsehood. They have zero conscience. They're doing this deliberately. They have silenced the voice of their conscience. There's no feelings of guilt. There's no feelings of remorse in what they are doing. Paul uses this terminology of conscience several times in his letter. We're to have a good conscience. We're to have a clear conscience. Our conscience needs to be right before God, but not these guys, right? This is dangerous 
individuals here who ignore the warning of conscience and plunge headlong into their deception. So they are not unwittingly doing this, okay? They are not unaware of the falsehoods. They're not ignorant of the falsehoods they are propagating, even though they may appear humble, even though they may have an air of authenticity, even though they may appear to be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. They are conscious liars and deceivers. Those are the two causes. And I would submit everything can kind of flow up under that. Why do people deconstruct from the faith? I will argue that they do not know the true gospel. Or they knew it, and they've allowed themselves to be influenced by deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And they depart from the faith. They're no longer trusting in Christ. They're no longer believing the gospel. They're no, no longer believing what Christ has done for them. They no longer trust in the grace of God in their life. Wicked and evil spirits find wicked and evil men to do their bidding and spread deception. That is the root of false theology. Bad theology comes by lying spirits and lying men. That causes many to fall away from the faith. So I want you to think about that when you hear excuses of why people de-church, deconstruct, you know, they're ex-evangelicals and why they're apostatizing. This is what is behind all of that. All right, well, let's move a little quicker here. The nature of the false teaching. What, what is it in view here? I mean, are they denying the deity of Christ? Is that what these false teaching, teachers are doing? Are they claiming the resurrection has already taken place? Are they denying the grounds of our justification by faith alone, through grace alone in Christ Alone? Are they, is there some distortions of the atonement? Are they adding works to grace? Yeah, all of that. And then some. Maybe not all of those things specifically, but in all the apostolic letters, we see the thread of, uh, of these denials of the truth in the Christian faith. But Paul is going to show us here two areas uh, in which they were leading uh, these believers astray. And they were requiring believers to deny two great gifts of God. Look what he says to them there. What are they doing? They're forbidding marriage and requiring the abstinence of food or certain foods. That's what they were doing. They forbid marriage, requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by all those who what? Believe and know the truth. They were spreading lies that ascetic practices, the denial of these fleshly appetites, was a necessary part of the Christian faith. And if you didn't do these things, well, you're not really a follower of Jesus Christ. If you didn't do these things, there's no way you could really know God or draw close to God or grow in godliness in your Christian life. And that's what asceticism is. When we talk about an ascetic life or ascetic practices, that is the denial of fleshly appetites like eating, like drinking, like sexual pleasure, right, through rule-keeping with the intent, right, that doing those things actually helps me to achieve whatever it is I think it is, greater freedom, a closer relationship to God, growing in godliness, a new level of spirituality, etc., etc., on the surface, you might just see those things as spiritual disciplines for the purpose of growing in godliness. But asceticism, like Paul is talking about here, uh, takes on an unhealthy and ungodly extreme that is a distortion of the gospel, completely distorts the gospel. And the false gospel here is that denying yourself these things that God has declared to be good is how you advance in godliness. And you will see godliness be the theme of what we talk about in the next couple of weeks here. Asceticism for these false teachers is how people uh, advance on this path of spirituality. In fact, they would make it essential to spirituality. And all of that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? So we don't, we don't want to get sidetracked in here. Paul could have talked about any number of things, but this is an important aspect of the kind of false teaching and the teachings of 
uh, of devils that were that was seeping into the church. Okay, forbidding marriage, requiring people to abstain from certain kinds of food, most likely meats. That's pretty evil, isn't it? I can't have my ribeye. That is a teaching of devils, no doubt. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here because Paul deals with this in several of his letters, but namely here in Colossians chapter 2. And look what he writes to the church at Colossae, 16 through 21. He writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a savage. Uh, savage. <laughs> a Sabbath. Now, this, this passage is immediately following what we read today. Okay, when we talk about our assurance of pardon, how Jesus put to shame, right, principalities and powers on the cross. He triumphed over them. Right? So it's, it's, it's telling us, look at the glorious thing that Jesus has done for us as believers and how we are in him now. So don't let anyone pass judgment on you now in regards to these things. Food and drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbath, they are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting, look, on asceticism, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste. Do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It was crazy. He's like, guys, look what Jesus did for you. Why on earth would you now want to revisit all of this stuff that used to be part of your life that in no way could do what you wanted it to do? In no way could solve the greatest problem of the human condition. Our sinful, sensual appetites that lead us to sin, death, and destruction. These things cannot do that. Yet we try. Yet we succumb to those rules. And so here, these ascetic teachings and practices fell on fertile ground uh, in the early church. It was a direct challenge to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think about the Greek culture of that time there at Ephesus and Asia Minor, all the surrounding regions. There was incipient Gnosticism. There was, there was this, this philosophy that was starting to take root and growing and to the, to the end of the first century and to the second century became a big deal. This, this Gnostic dualism that, that uh, regarded the human body and the material physical world as evil and bad and needs to be suppressed and set aside. And what is good is the spiritual, the immaterial, okay? So denying yourself these basic human pleasures like sex and marriage and eating certain foods was seen as a denial of those things which were evil. That were part of the body, the material world, the, phys the physical world, and they ought to embrace the good, the spiritual things, in order to attain a higher form of spirituality. And the way they would get there... Do not do this, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. Don't handle these, these things. And this is what Paul is talking about here. But is this something just for the church back in the first century? Nah, we've kind of modernized these things a little bit, right? Uh, it's still a problem in the church today. There's a lot of churches of extreme legal, legalism, lots of rules and regulations. Some of you may have been part of that. That was a little bit part of my background in the church world as well. There was a lot of do-nots, tons of do-nots. There was, okay, you need to be saved by Jesus Christ, salvation through Jesus alone. However, make sure you're not listening to that devil's music or 
of God, you can't come close to God. Make sure you don't watch R-rated movies. That'll send you straight to hell. Right? Some of you are going, ouch. Yes. Hopefully you don't still believe those things. A lot of extra rules. I think about the excesses of the purity culture when I was coming up as a, as a, as a, as a Christian. And, and all of that that was put upon, you know, uh, especially young people. Sex was a dirty word. You remember that. That was very harmful teaching. There was some good in it. There was, there was some truth in it. But it did a lot of damage as well. These are extreme type things that we end up doing that we layer on top of the gospel and we have everyone believe that you've got to do these things in order for God to accept you, approve of you, love you, favor you, etc., etc., etc. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. It's a distortion of the gospel. The Catholic Church in the Middle Ages said that sexual love was evil even in the context between a husband and a wife. Think about that. The physical act. The only time you could do it was to make babies, but not enjoy it. Make sure you do not engage in the passion of it. It's sinful. And we laugh, but a lot of early church fathers had the same view. Tertullian, Ambrose, Augustine, they all had some pretty funky views when it came to sex and sexuality and the enjoyment of sex in the marital relationship. Not, it's not about fornication and those kind of things. Those things are still wrong. But even in the context of that, uh, there was a time in the medieval church where the Roman church, half of the calendar days on your calendar were days that marital couples could not be intimate. They kept adding days. Make sure you're not doing this. This is a high holy day. None of that, none of that funny business. Okay? Don't do it. Right. Um, So we might think that the Reformation had to do with, you know, the preservation of justification by faith alone. But I think this had a lot to do with it as well. (laughs) Like, you know what? This this necessitated a Reformation in the church. Right. This stuff's messed up. Right. But what is ultimately wrong with denying oneself these things in the pursuit of godliness? Because some may be called to celibacy. Right. Jesus said that. There are some that for the sake of the kingdom may be called to be eunuchs, to be celibate, to serve the Lord. But is that the norm? Is that the general will of God? You can say no, but confidence. No, it's not, right? We know that fasting is appropriate, an appropriate Christian discipline. But is that the norm, the general will of God for human life? No, we got to eat. You know what happens when you don't eat? You're dead. Okay. You're D-E dead. All right? When you add, right? Because here, it all comes back to the heart, right? Our motivations for doing these things. Why are we doing these things? Spiritual disciplines are good. But if you start doing spiritual disciplines to the intent that this is how I get grace from God and favor from God, that's not the gospel. You're off the rails already there. Right? When you add rules and regulations to the gospel, it ceases to be the true and authentic saving gospel. You can avoid external practices. You can abstain from certain foods. And you will still not abstain from a selfish and sinful heart that is greedy and cruel and selfish. We can do a lot on the outside that looks holy. And that we can do these things thinking that this is how I'm going to grow closer to Christ. But this remains unchanged. Unchanged. There's still lust, there's still greed, and a whole host of evil things there. You can hide your inner wickedness and sinful heart by the outward observance of these ascetic denials. Right? Vegetarian can abstain from eating meats, but they can't put down those donuts. Yes? (laughs) You're getting scared, aren't you? All right? (laughs) You can fast three days out of the month and still harbor resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart towards someone else. That's the problem with ascetic practices. That's the problem with doing these things with the wrong heart and motivation. 
It's the extreme of what we see right in the church. Priests take a vow of celibacy. This is supposed to consecrate them and make them holier and closer to God and be devoted to God. Yet many are burning with lust in their heart. And you know how that plays out. Ascetic practices never, ever, ever produce and deliver what they promise to. Yet, because we're still mired in this self-salvation project, right? That we, you know, we're going to do these things to, in order to add our part to our salvation. We screw this whole thing up. It's messed up. Furthermore, to forbid what God's word has declared to be good and God's general will for his people is folly and error. Marriage and food, which were being forbidden, right, are gifts God created to be received with thanksgiving. That's what they were created for. And we think by denying ourselves these things and renouncing them, uh, renouncing this material world, we can become more holy and righteous and good. And that is not the gospel. So how do we avoid the ditch of apostatizing, departing from the faith through these particular practices? Well, here quickly, we're going to give the antidote to falling into the error of asceticism that can lead to departing from the faith. The first is this. We must affirm the inherent goodness of everything God created. And we talked about this a little bit in Citigroup uh, this past Friday as we were looking at the doctrine of creation. Think about the creation week. And that creation narrative in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. At the end of every day, God rendered a verdict on his creation, on his act of creating. What did he say? That what he made was, it's good. The end of the sixth day, when, when all was done and he was going to enter rest, what did he say? Behold, everything was very good. This is God's verdict on his creation who are we to say otherwise that those things that god made and he said are good we're going to say no they're not good they're evil don't do that you'll never get closer to god you'll never be holy you'll never be righteous he says his creation is very good God created male and female and charged our first parents with the responsibility of filling the earth with other image bearers. How does that happen? Don't answer that. You should know. That one flesh union between a man and a woman who have given themselves in marriage is God's idea. It is God's design. To forbid that is to go against the creator. To forbid that as a means of obtaining some deeper spirituality is to call God a liar and to insult and deny the gospel. When we think about food, what does scripture tell us? That God put everything on this earth that man needed for his survival. Everything he made is good for food and good to eat. But it's not just utilitarian. There is enjoyment in food. Wisdom literature is filled with that, evoking that language that we eat and we drink, and it is something joyful and to be enjoyed. But then you had these guys saying, no, 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 you can't. Don't enjoy that. Don't indulge the flesh with good food and good drink. No, we, we have to. God created for our enjoyment and pleasure, not just for our survival. Jesus himself declared that all foods are clean. Read that in Mark chapter 7. He upended this notion that abstaining from certain foods is what would actually make someone righteous. Well, if I don't put that into my body, then I will be holy. No, he said, it's not what you put in your body. That stuff's going to come out in the normal processes. It's what comes out of the heart. That, that is what defiles. That's what messes you up because the heart is wrong. Then we have Peter. That incredible vision Peter was given, right, in Acts chapter 10, right? He's, he's out there. He's on the rooftop. He's praying. He goes into a trance, and he gets this vision of this large sheet coming down from heaven, filled with animals and creatures and birds of the air, and he hears a voice. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. What a glory. That's the like, best verse in the Bible, right? <laughs> Every, it's all there for you, man goodness every cut of beef 
fish and bird, right? He's, rise, kill, and eat. And being the good Jewish boy that he was, he's like, God, Lord, no, forbid. No, I, how could I eat something that's common and unclean? I would never do that. See what he was doing right there? Falling right back into his own ascetic practices and Jewish practices that did not change the heart. But the boy said what? Do not, right? What God has made clean, do not call common. I've made it clean. Who are you to call it unclean? Now, Peter being the knucklehead that he was, he had to have this vision three times <laughs> to drive the point home. And uh, lest we make fun of him, I think we would need that as well, right? What God has made clean, do not call common. We who believe and know the truth need to celebrate the goodness of God's creation. All of it. This extends far beyond marriage and food to all of life. We look at the glories of his creation, the mountains, the rivers, the lakes, the fields, the forests, the trees, the flowers, the vegetables, the birds, the snakes, the lizards, the squirrels, even the alligators, ants, butterflies, the sun, planetary bodies. The wonders and uniqueness of, human, of humanity as God's special creation. The joys of gender and marriage and sex and children and family and friendship. The rhythms of work and rest and play and peace and freedom. Our clothing, our homes, food, drink, art, culture, music, literature. The whole range of human experience and creativity. It's good. What God has created is good. Not everything was created by God, but everything that was created by God, right, is good. And to reject that is to depart from the faith. To require abstinence as a means of godliness is a grave error. And to teach those who want to be followers of Christ that they must abstain from certain things in order to know him more, to be saved, puts you in league with the devil. Makes you a cause for people to stumble and drift from authentic faith. So we need to celebrate the goodness of God, the inherent goodness of God's creation. And and receive it as a gift is the next thing. And receive it with thanksgiving. Right? We must receive with thanksgiving the goodness of God's creation. That's why he says nothing is to be rejected if it is received right? with thanksgiving and prayer. And it's not that marriage and certain foods are now suddenly bad after the fall. right? We think, well, maybe before the fall, yes, all of that's good. No, everything afterward can be abused. Everything afterwards is tainted by our sinfulness right, and the curse on this world. So it's not all of a sudden that... that it's bad because of that. Right? We, we're the ones who messed that up. Marriage wasn't bad, but we can mess marriage up, right? All those things. We can abuse God's good things. But these things that were subjected to uncleanness and, and, and abuse are now redeemed by Christ. And they can be renewed for the glory of God and for the benefit of the Christian. So verse 5, he says, it's made holy through the word of God and prayer. Now, I want you to see this. This is fascinating. Made holy is the word sanctify, to consecrate. So these things that we're talking about here, marriage and food and all the goodness of God's creation that we're to receive with thanksgiving has a double consecration here by those who receive it the way they're supposed to. with The word of God and with prayer. God declared by his word that what he had made is good. That's the first consecration he declared it to be good that's it but how do we sanctify it as well well we sanctify it as well with prayer and what's the prayer in view here a prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving we receive it with thanksgiving and that's how we should approach all of life giving thanks to god for all his good gifts and then they are redeemed for our enjoyment are you thankful for god's good gifts for the goodness of his creation? Right? Are you thankful for those things? It's an insult to the creator to call what he has made good, to call it evil. And I know many of us say grace over our meal, but how many of us say grace over everything that we do? 
We thank God for the food and his provision, but do we thank God for everything we engage in? When you walk into work tomorrow, are you thanking God for your work? Or do you have this sorry look on your face? Like this is evil. I know. I I hear it. You thank God for all that you have, your, your possessions, the things that he's made you stewards over? Or are you whining and complaining that you don't have something or you don't have enough? How about you when you look at your kids? Are they just a means to a headache or do you see them as good gifts from God that he's given you to steward those young lives for the glory of God, to teach them and to model and be an example of Christ to them? We should be saying grace over everything about our life. When you look at your spouse, don't look at them right now, but when you do, how do you think about them? Are you thankful to God for them? Are you just always seeing what they're not doing and how they're not meeting your expectations and not living up to whatever it is ideal you have for them? Gratitude and thankfulness should mark the Christian life in every way because we live in recognition that what God has made is good. And and I'm to receive those gifts with thanksgiving and gratitude because guess what I deserve? Nothing. Nothing at all. But God is gracious, and God is good. God is good. Oh, I'm going to move real quick here, and we'll finish. The last thing we need to do, there's more that could be said about that, but we'll, we'll move on here and revisit it next week. The last thing we must do is train ourselves in sound doctrine. Right? Because look, he turns right here and says, If, Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant, a good minister of Christ Jesus. This is what you've got to do, Timothy. You've got to put it before the people. You've got to remind them often, frequently, as often as you gather, to be on the lookout for this. This is a distortion of the gospel. This is false teaching. Here's the truth. Here's what it looks like. Because how else are we going to be able to detect what is false? And the only way we're going to be able to detect what is false is by becoming experts in what is true. And what is the truth? So that has to be put before the church continually, right? This is why I labor week in, week out to present to you the truth over and over again. There's things that have to be repeated because we forget. In the grind of life and the things that we do, we forget the gospel. So we need to be reminded often and continually of the good news and of the truth. But we're only going to be able to detect the false By knowing what is true. We never go beyond these basic truths of the gospel. And uh, a pastor who does not remind their flock of those things frequently makes them susceptible, a target for deception and error. And we don't want that here. False teachers do what they do in the church. Again, with a veneer of Christianity and godliness. uh, But ignorant Christians who have not been trained in sound doctrine, are easy prey, always. The flavor of deception could be promises of freedom, a higher level of spirituality, deeper closeness and intimacy with God, but again, it comes with do's and don'ts. You want that financial breakthrough? Send that seed gift of $1,000. But not just anywhere, not to your local church. Send it to this website address. Make sure you log on that that guy gets it, right? You want a deeper walk with God? Make sure you attend our worship conference. We're going to worship for six hours. And you're guaranteed to draw closer to God. You want to to, uh, be a better Christian? Don't read secular books. Don't watch secular movies. Don't do any secular things. Don't wear secular underwear. (laughs) Wear the holy stuff. That's why the Mormons have their own special underwear. If you know, you know. All right. You want to experience freedom from religion? Don't be part of a church. Just watch your favorite teacher online. And what does Paul remind Timothy here? Avoid these things. Avoid these things. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. That's what we're to do. As we read in Colossians 2.23, these things have an appearance of wisdom 
promoting self-made religion and asceticism, but they cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh. They do not produce the true work of godliness. This is why grace is so amazing, brothers and sisters. This is why the grace of God is so remarkable. You don't have to do these things to get that. Christ has already done everything that we need to receive that grace. To have it lavished upon us and to enjoy all of the blessings and benefits of it. So have nothing to do with these things, brothers and sisters. Avoid them. Stay close to God's word. Affirm the inherent goodness of everything God created. Express thanksgiving to God for every good gift of creation. For if we reject God's good gifts, if we live lives of ingratitude, if we skimp on our training and sound doctrine, we run the risk of departing from the faith. So, give thanks to God for having received the only true gospel that leads to salvation, freedom, and abundant life for the glory of God.